Hi everyone, my name is Harper Brown and I am the Senior Online Editor for the Wisconsin Law Review. In my role, I manage and edit the Wisconsin Law Review Forward, which is the online companion to the Wisconsin Law Review Print Edition. The online journal was founded to publish pieces on current issues and to reach a wider audience than our more traditional print law review. In keeping with that goal, we are launching a podcast to discuss current legal issues that affect those within the legal community and beyond. Our goal is to make the legal scholarship happening within the University of Wisconsin impactful and useful to individuals around the state. Each week, we will discuss a different current events topic with experts that have published law review articles on the area of interest. This week, we will start by discussing the importance of legal scholarship. I have with me a panel that offers a wide variety of expertise, including a Wisconsin Supreme Court justice, a law professor, and two attorneys who are Wisconsin Law Review alumni. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. I'm Jill Karofsky. I'm a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I'm a graduate of the UW Law School. I graduated in 1992 with a dual degree from the La Follette Institute. I got a master's there as well. I uh, have been a district attorney, both an assistant DA and a deputy DA. I worked at the National Conference of Bar Examiners. I was Wisconsin's first violence against women resource prosecutor. I was an assistant uh, attorney general, and then I became the head of the Office of Crime Victim Services for the Wisconsin Department of Justice, the state of Wisconsin. I was elected to Dane County Circuit Court in 2017, and I have only been on the Supreme Court for a few months. My 10-year term started on August 1st of this year of 2020. Um, I'm the super proud mom of two kids. I have a daughter in college a son in high school, and I have two golden retrievers, one of which we may hear from today. I've got a five-month-old puppy named Lucky. It turns out when you run for statewide office and your kids say, we deserve a puppy, that you have to get your kids a puppy. (laughs) That's what I did. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, Professor Qureshi, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Asifa Qureshi Lambis, University of Wisconsin since 2004. Um, I uh, teach constitutional law and also Islamic law. I write in comparative law and legal theory um, and uh, really I've taught some of the law review editors here. I'm really excited to be able to help and um, I was on law review when I was in law school so this is a wonderful opportunity for me to give back to the next generation who's in the same shoes that I once was. Um, Michael Wasau, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I graduated from Wisconsin Law School in 96. Uh, I was the senior administrative editor of the Law Review. And uh, for those of you now on Law Review, that was sort of like the malt and barley editor for the senior board. Um, But you got the same amount of credits as the editor in chief. Um, After law school, I clerked for Justice Wilcox on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, I then did the big firm thing for a few years at Sidley and Austin in Chicago and Foley and Lardner in Madison. Um, I then in in a brilliant move, quit my job at Foley in 2001 and moved to Boulder, Colorado, just as the tech bubble burst and the job market completely dried up. Uh, So I ended up starting my career over. I took a clerkship with the chief judge for the district court in uh, in Boulder, and then spent a number of years at smaller firms uh, before catching the tech entrepreneur bug, which kind of runs rampant in Boulder. uh, And I founded an online 
nanny payroll company called Poppins Payroll, um, which is what I do full time now. Uh, we're in 12 states and we move about uh, a little over $100 million in uh, payroll and taxes a year. We're not yet in Wisconsin, but we're planning to add Wisconsin and Minnesota early next year. Um, but unfortunately, my position doesn't really involve a lot of uh, contemplating heady legal issues at this point. Awesome. Thank you. And um, John Skilton, if you could please introduce yourself. My name is John Skilton. Uh, I'm a 1969 graduate of the law school UW. Uh, my claim to fame, I think, in part is twofold. First, my father taught at the law school, a commercial law from 1951 to 1976. Uh, and then I had the great honor of clerking for Tom Fairchild. Uh, upon my graduation. Uh, since clerking for the judge, I was at Foley for some 30 years. Some people would think that's a career, but that was only the beginning. Uh, last uh, Monday, I finished my 50th year in the practice of law. Uh, litigation, all kinds of litigation, commercial litigation. Uh, I've been president of the bar, uh, co-chair of Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Etc. I mean, etc. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We are so lucky to have such a wide-ranging group of um, lawyers that have uh, diff very different experiences and with um, legal scholarship. So that brings me to my first question. Since all of you have some relation with legal scholarship and law reviews. Why do you think that law reviews and legal scholarship are important? Students' point of view, I was the articles editor in 69 and had the great experience of working with Bob Rabin, who is one of today's great scholars and towards uh, Stanford University, and Bill Foster, one of the icons of the law profession and of the Wisconsin faculty. Both uh, constructive editing, uh, not as sensitive as I expected they might be. Uh, and it was a wonderful learning uh, process as you really focus on the structure of a sentence, the uh, appropriate citation form, uh, and frankly, sending the message as clearly uh, to the reading public as you can. So it's a wonderful learning experience. Uh, and I'm sorry that every law student doesn't get that kind of intensive uh, help. I might be able to reply to this question from the uh, the receiving end. I was never in law review. In fact, I will tell you that I was the last person admitted to my class entering the law school in 1989. And I know that because I was out in Washington, D.C., working for, for a congressman at that time, Congressman Dick Durbin, you know, of course, is in the Senate. And I was sitting in his congressional office and I got a call in very, very late August. And they said, you have 24 hours to decide if you wanna be in this class or the last person we're letting in. So as the last person let into the law school in 1989, I never did law review, never did any of the, never did any of the writing, did, did not do moot court. As I mentioned, I did the dual degree program um, in the, at the La Follette Institute. Um, I got my master's of public policy when I got my law degree about three and a half years later. Um, all, all that to say is that I'm the only one on this call who are on this Zoom that has not been on law review, but I am the recipient of the articles that are written. And I think that 
Um, from my perspective, what law review articles allow for are a couple of things. Number one is a really in-depth look at whatever it is, is being written about and more in-depth than a court decision can, can get into, for instance, because I will only, you know, we only decide things that come to us and we try to decide them in the narrowest way possible. Where a law review article can be, can have a depth and breadth that uh, we don't have the, I'm gonna use the word luxury of getting into because sometimes we do look at these issues and I think, oh, I wish we could dig down more. I wish I could learn more. I wish we could write more about this. And, and of course we, we we're not allowed to do that. Um, th but the other thing that law reviews, law review articles can do is, is they can think about what issues are on the horizon and they can think about what issues are on the periphery. And I think that that is incredibly important because I think you do have the advantage of, of trying to anticipate what is going to be important in the coming months or the coming years. Um, and I will tell you that when my clerks find a law review article, and this just happened like two weeks ago on a case we were working on, it can be a real goldmine because it means that there's been, um, as has already been mentioned, there has been a really deep dive into how well it is written, how well it is researched, all citations are correct. And it just leads you on this treasure trove of information and citations. And of course, it can be cited to and I can rely on it. And so I think for all of those reasons, it, the um, law review articles really do help the development of law throughout the, the United States and in, in, um, in every court. About these questions, um, I remembered um, a, a sort of controversy in academia over the fact that law reviews are edited by students, right? So there's this like elitism in peer review and at most social sciences, most humanities, most other journal sciences, all are edited by peers. And so there's this sort of like, well, those law reviews, they're, they're just a bunch of students editing them and there are pitfalls to that. And it's the sexy topics that they're gonna pick. And you know, this whole, there's a sort of gaming the system and get the students attention kind of thing. And so it's often sort of criticized. Um, and there's some fair criticism there, but what I've always found about the fact that law students are editing our pieces when we publish in a law journal is that they get every single word reviewed with a fine tooth comb. I was on the, you know, the one of the ones doing the fine tooth combing when I was on law, an editor on Law Review. And now I really appreciate being an author, sending an article to Law Review, knowing that that's gonna happen. And so that I know when it gets published, I can be very confident that I haven't messed up and you know overstated something or failed to cite something that was really important that doesn't always happen with peer review peer review doesn't have the time and energy to do that level of fine-tooth comb so i actually think the product that comes out of law reviews i am very confident when i look through a law review article that i'm getting something that's had many 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 eyes on it with a lot of detail and the level of detail that a law student tends to have where you read it every single word i really appreciate that and so i often really value um, law reviews as part of my major first and second step in my own research. If I find a law review article as part of my own research, I really read all the footnotes and I really read all the, the bibliography knowing that this is really going to help me because it really is solid. So that's one thing I think that the whole genre of law journals offers to the world of academia that I think is underappreciated. I was just going to say, having been a clerk a couple of different times, including, you know, on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, uh -huh. you know, I would second the justice's comments that, you know, as a clerk, you're typically uh, overworked and underpaid. 
And if you come across either a, a comment that's on point or a note on, uh, on one of the important cases or, or just an article on the topic, it, it's like finding gold uh, and it saves you so much more time. And certainly you are going to be also more open to the conclusions and the insights that the person drafting the article is making because they've already helped you along so far in your research. And, you know, I think as everyone knows, if you influence the clerk, there's going to be some influence on the judge. I mean, they ultimately make the decision, but if you're a good clerk, um, you know, you're helping your judge make the decision. So I think that's, that's certainly an important role. And from the student's perspective, you know, obviously you're learning attention to detail um, from the, from the citations that you have to go to, which is an incredibly important skill uh, in many aspects of life, but particularly law. You're improving your writing, which is probably the most important skill of a lawyer. Um, and and something that's overlooked, and I think it's really unique. This is a group of students that are coming together to create a national publication that people are going to read all over the country and that is going to influence the law. And to think about what Professor said, you know, that students are creating this um, is really an incredible achievement. And being learning how to work within an organization uh, to achieve a goal is something that is invaluable in really most aspects of life. Well, so I echo all of that. I was just going to give an anecdote. One of my first jobs, I clerked right out of law school, and then I went to the Ninth Circuit, and I was a, I was a staff attorney at the Ninth Circuit, but it was a specific type of staff attorney. I was the death penalty law clerk for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I had the word death written on my business card, um, and I was hired because I looked like I would be able to do a good job, but not because I had any background in death penalty. I knew nothing about federal death penalty law at all. So what I did was the first three weeks, I basically found every law review article I could find on the history of the death penalty in the country, what the case law had said, um, what the current issues were, where the controversies were. And I gave myself a crash course um, outside of all of my work hours every evening and every weekend. I just spent the first three weeks just spending time with law review articles. And I felt very confident at the end of that, that I knew the field that I had just jumped into. Um, and it really, I, I, I always remember that. It was law review articles that helped me get the expertise that I needed for that job. And it gave me basically a crash course. And it does it in a way that's concise, um, but also deep, which is a really hard thing to do. I could have gone and found the books but I don't have time to read all the books. I could read a 30 page law review article and then see where the key issues were and then find the next law review article that pulled off of that main issue. You can't do that with books. You could read a library of books and there's it's just too much to um, uh, accumulate knowledge from, from book reading. So that's the other thing I wanna say is it really does, like Michael said, it helps you get a really quick understanding of the lay of the land, but in a very deep way that you're not gonna get from like newspaper articles or something like that. And it doesn't involve as much time investment as trying to read every book on the subject. Great, thank you all for your insightful answers. I have um, one question that kind of follows off of what we are already talking about, but what do you see as a law review's role in the legal community and beyond? And are there any areas that you think law reviews could do a better job at being impactful. One goal of the forward and of our podcast is to make law reviews more accessible to all of the legal community and beyond. And um, I'm wondering if you have any insight on how law reviews can do a better job of doing that. 
well, I, I can kind of chime in. Uh, so when I was in law school, I wrote this article um, about sort of the role of the law review. And at that time, almost all of the articles were uh, addressing these big national global views. And there was very little time devoted to sort of developing Wisconsin law uh, or very little space. And, you know, I went back and looked at the, the purpose when it was founded now 100 years ago, because um, it was 75 years at that time. And it was really founded mainly to develop Wisconsin law. And so I wrote this article sort of advocating that we should return to that. And from what I'm seeing, I think, I think you sort of have. Um, and I think you've done it in a very intelligent way with the, with the Wisconsin Law Review Forward. Now let me chime in since you mentioned the 75th. I expressed my thoughts on these issues. But let me add a practical thought. In writing my article, I had our librarian do a a search of all citations of Wisconsin Law Review, which I found to be instructive in terms of the question of who was actually using the Law Review. Those uh, statistics are published in my uh, very short article, but uh, I think it's the kind of useful direction that the Law Review can take, just to find out who's reading and who's citing at what courts on what issues. Uh, and, and you'll get at least some sense of the utility uh, of the Law Review by, by doing that. Thank you both. Um, uh, going back to a point that um, Justice Karofsky made about how, and I think a few of you may have touched on, about how law reviews oftentimes can point towards what the issues of the day are and what issues are coming up. And um, going off of that, a lot of 2Ls across the country are beginning to write their law review notes. And what issues do you all think that they should be paying attention to? What do you see as important legal issues that should be addressed right now. I, I feel like I feel like I could talk for hours on this yeah. this question. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I'll just tell you what's coming at me today and then, you know, maybe it's because today is October, was it the 14th or 15th? Uh, 2020, um, I'd say that there are a lot of election law issues to look at. There are a lot of issues concerning the environment and climate change. I think there are a lot of separation of powers issue, issues dealing with uh, administrative agencies and the power that they have or don't have. I think that looking at diversity in the legal profession, diversity on law reviews, diversity, you know, I did a, actually one of my clerks do a law review search on law reviews yesterday. And one of the things that she learned is that um, men are more, that, that male authors of law review articles are more likely to be cited than women authors. Um, I think my background before I became a judge was in the area of crime victims rights. And there is a, there is, um, the, the study, it's called therapeutic jurisprudence. It's the idea that you would use the justice system to actually help people heal. Um, so if you can imagine the criminal justice system and people enter here and when defendants leave, they actually leave in a better place. When victims leave, they actually leave in a better place because people are hurt and their needs are met and their trauma is met. I think talking about how trauma impacts those of us in this profession, the, the vicarious trauma, the secondary, the um, 
that that we we see sometimes we we actually see that the trauma depending on on what your what your job is you may be a DA who actually goes to a crime scene and um, you know, you actually are, you know, an eyewitness to something that happens. Um, some of us, you know, can be injured our, ourselves, but for sure the vicarious trauma and how that impacts every single person in this profession. I, I think that there's a lot about being trauma-informed in courtrooms, in offices, uh, with one another. Um, I could go, I could go on and on and on. Um, but those are just uh, those are the issues that I was thinking about just since I read your question. Looking at looking at our court, uh, the issue that has been uh, troublesome, I'm sure, to all uh, of the justices is the question of separation of powers. Who has the uh, uh, the right to make health decisions that affect the populace as a whole? Uh, very controversial decisions. Uh, obviously, the law review won't be able to resolve the court's problems, but uh, in, within that group of decisions are just a manifold group of, of, of uh, writable issues, issues that relate to fairly fundamental things. I've just spent the last three hours listening to the uh, hearings uh, and the testimony today uh, from other groups, and you get a sense that a lot of the issues that the justice was relating to and suggesting are current in the uh, hearings relating to uh, uh, Justice Barrett. So it's, uh, I should say judge, but I think we know it will be justice. So, so yeah, they, they're in the air uh, and they're, they're in the courts. And just to, if I may just add one thing, just to springboard off of, off of what John just said, the other thing I think that we're have, that we're seeing right now in the judiciary are courts who are not um, necessarily don't ex don't necessarily have the tools to make very fast decisions, being in the position of needing to make very very quick decisions. I'm thinking about my election back in April, where both the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court had to make a decision about elections, and really the, the state Supreme Court did it within hours. Um, and that's not the way that these courts are set up, right? I'm on a court with six other people. Uh, I don't know the last time you tried to get seven people to agree on something. It's, it's difficult and it's set up to be difficult so that we can hear from many, many different perspectives. What it is not set up to be is to be a, a court where decisions are made quickly. But I think that because of COVID and because of the elections, we're seeing more of that. And I think it will be interesting, you know, to think about, is that, gonna, is that a trend that's gonna continue? Is that just because it's happening right now, because we are having these two really, really huge events happening at the same time? What is the impact um, of, of those? You know, you end up creating the, the shadow docket at the US Supreme Court with the really, really quick decisions. And so um, I think that's, you know, what, what John's talking about. It's not just the decisions, but how are these decisions being made? Uh, I, I have one specific issue that I think would be a, a good topic and very timely. Um, being in the household payroll business, I'm sort of acutely aware of the, the difficulties that face domestic workers like nannies, caregivers, house cleaners. Um, the IRS estimates that about 17% of household employers actually legal re, legally report um, their workers and, and contribute payroll taxes. Uh, the rest of them just pay under the table, which means, you know, their workers are not afforded 
same protections as employees of like a regular business, um, like minimum wage and overtime. They also don't get benefits like unemployment, social security, Medicare. Um, and, and oftentimes these are people who, who need it the most. So a few states have been sort of progressive on this issue and have enacted domestic workers' bills of rights, um, which sort of guarantees rights to domestic workers, tries to make them aware of them, uh, and, and then also enforce them with respect to the employers. And there's been some discussion of, of a national domestic workers' bill of rights and I think uh, Kamala Harris is a, is a proponent of it. So I think it'd be really timely and interesting for someone to look at the state, the state domestic workers bills of rights that exist, how successful they've been, and what the advantages would be the, to having policy on this issue. Oh, add to that, um, I echo all of the topics. And one thing that occurred to me as Michael was talking is that um, you, as a law student, you might run across a topic in where you least expect it, right? So a really good, I would say, pay attention to whatever podcast you're listening to, whatever news you happen to be watching, and he, listen for a problem. Listen for somebody's complaining that this isn't working for them, or they were frustrated with how it came out, and then dig in there to think about where's the legal issue there. Um, one of the things about a lot of your article is you have to care about the topic. You're not gonna survive writing an entire law review article if it doesn't interest you. So if you're just picking the top you know, headline or topic, but it's really dry in your mind, it's not gonna last, it's not gonna be a good article and you're gonna hate yourself at the end. So pick something that really drives you. If you hear someone complaining, if you hear a news you know, story that you, you're really, you're moved by, find the legal issue in there and there's probably one. <laughs> there's usually a legal issue in every social issue. Um, the things on my radar are, as we just heard, um, you know, there's all, all kinds of stuff happening, separation of powers. When I first started teaching constitutional law here in the early 2000s, um, my, most of my colleagues didn't spend very much time on executive power. <laughs> um, and I started, you know, as we started into the surveillance state and drones and all of this stuff was happening post 9-11, even under Obama, I expanded my execute, executive power stuff. And then of course, under the Trump administration, it just blows up. Who talked about emoluments clause before? Now people wanna know what the heck is the emoluments clause. So there's all kinds of current event issues having to do with executive power. Um, I think issues having to do with things that used to be sort of a side specialty for people like immigration law, I think are now coming into the forefront where people are realizing this is something that impacts everybody in our society all the time. And when you're when it's really egregious, like children being pulled away from their parents, then everyone pays attention. But there's other aspects of immigration law that that affect all of us, stores that are closing because someone's being deported, right? There's all kinds of areas where immigration matters. And I think it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue, especially because even uh, on whatever side you are on DACA or on the big topics, uh, a lot of people think immigration reform needs to happen. Now, how it should look is a debate, but there's lots of open space for immigration reform. So if you've got new ideas about that, I'd say jump in. And the other thing, big, huge thing, obviously, is COVID. There's all kinds of legal issues that are going to come out of COVID. What are service abilities? Can I access? What kind of accommodation did you make for the risk factor of, you know, uh, of catching COVID? So there's going to be lots of law on COVID that you might want to be interested in. And then the other big thing is race, right? So all the different aspects, I mean, Joe said diversity in general, but what are the ways that 
race is impacting our new ways of thinking, both criminal justice, but everything. And how are we, I mean, what are the numbers about we're not no longer going to be a white majority in this country very soon. And so I, I've heard it said that we're still in, we're still fighting the last vestiges of the Civil War, where we're just trying to figure out how we're going to be as a society that is made up of multiple races, multiple religions, multiple languages. What is the best way that we can create a society that understands that and appreciates it rather than is scared by it? And I think a lot of the violence that we're seeing is in response to being afraid of what the future would lead to. So anything having to do with um, negotiating um, establishment clause issues for religious diversity and race issues for equal protection and all, you know, sex discrimination, anything that has to do with pushing us into a place where we can be a country of a lot of different people, but not be afraid of each other. Anybody who's got any ideas about that, I think you'll be well received. Excellent. Thank you all. You had such great answers for that question. Can you think of a time when a law review article changed your opinion on a topic? And um, could you tell us about that time or if there's a time when a law review article opened your eyes to something that you hadn't thought about? When yeah. my comment failed, I realized I didn't want to be an environmental lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, uh, when I was the articles editor all the way back in 69, a gentleman by the name of Justin Moriel wrote an article on uh, the right of privacy as it relates to uh, pornography enforcement, and it really the, the right of privacy in a way, uh, and circumstantially in a way that that at least shifted my view from uh, absolutely certain to confused. But uh, nevertheless, it influenced uh, the way I thought about a very important topic. Yes, I I um, not too long ago read a law review article on uh, chapter uh, nine eighty uh, sex predator. Um, and it was, it was, um, it was very, very helpful to me, especially as someone who's, um, you know, so much of my background has been helping victims. So this was a very, very good perspective and a really, really important perspective for me to have and to consider. This is a great question for students that are listening. What is the most common writing mistake or writing pet peeve that you see in briefs presented to you or, um, student work, briefs that you've seen in um, the legal profession generally? Though, is it, am I limited to one? <laughs> um, look, this is, I will tell you that, um, you know, as someone who, I really grew up in courtrooms, right? I was in the Dane County DA's office. The first 10 years of my career, I was never in an office. I was only in a courtroom. And so that is where a lot of my perspective comes from. When I became a circuit court judge, I decided that the most important thing in my courtroom was going to be how people treated one another. And when law students would come into my courtroom and, and view what was happening, I would say to them, where do I have the most discretion? And they would say, you have the most discretion in sentencing. And I said, no, I have the most discretion in how people are treated in these four walls. I don't have that same power as, a, as an appellate judge, right? Because now I'm just, I'm receiving briefs. but my pet peeve is when in those briefs, people are disrespectful. Sometimes they're disrespectful to members of the court. You can tell in their writing. Sometimes they're disrespectful to the other side. Um, I will tell you, it does nothing to further someone's argument. It is a huge distraction. And when I read that, I usually think this is a red herring. These, this party does not have a good argument. So they are just lashing out. They are trying to get my attention 
uh, you know, to go down the road of, of being disrespectful and get my attention that way. So my attention will be distracted from how terrible their legal arguments are or that the facts just aren't going to match up for them. But there is just, I don't think there's any place in this profession for people not to treat other people respectfully and fairly. As someone who's lived in a courtroom for 50 years, uh, I share that certainly as a concept. Uh, there are occasions where to be uh, fair to your client and to the facts, you have to be specific. Uh, and, and it's a fine line between uh, being uh, specific and being contumacious. It's absolutely up to the judge to say everyone in this courtroom is going to be treated fairly and, and respectfully. And if we have time for just a quick anecdote, I can tell you what I would do in my courtroom. And that is when things would get out of control and it was it was oftentimes it may not be the lawyer, but it might be the defendant who understandably is really, really upset and scared and worked up and interrupting everyone else in the courtroom. I would just tell everyone to stop. I would say we're all going to take two or three big deep breaths together. At least I am. And if you want to join me, great. So I made some space and some time. And then I would talk about the procedural due process. Let me tell you how this hearing is going to work. I'm going to hear from the prosecutor and any of their witnesses. Then I'm going to hear from your lawyer and anyone else you want to bring forward. The last person who's going to talk in this hearing before I make a decision is you. And when you're talking, I'm going to make sure none of these other people interrupt you because I want to hear every single word that you say. So when they're talking, I'm going to ask you to afford them the same respect and not interrupt them. Do we have a deal? Yes. And that was it. And I had to do that many times in many different hearings. I never had to do it more than once in a hearing because that person suddenly felt heard. Um, but you are absolutely right, John. We, we need to give lawyers these, we need to give lawyers these skills and judges these skills and, um, People just need to, to treat people with respect. This the, the profession is hard enough. These issues are hard enough for whosoever case it is, whether they're in the courtroom or their case is getting up to the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court. This is could be the biggest deal in there. Certainly, it's, it's probably really, really high on the list of things that's going on for them at the moment, but it could also be one of the biggest deals in their entire life. To translate that, the, write, the written version of that, what I would say is a mistake that I've seen is that when making an argument, you create a straw man of the opposing argument and you give the weakest version of the opposing argument and the strongest version of your argument. That again is a red herring. The best writing is where you take the other side absolutely seriously, see it as much as you can through their side, give the best version of the opposing argument and then respond to it. So that gives whatever the reader is, whether it's a judge or a fellow student or an academic, you really feel like you've seen the whole playing field and now you're making a good decision based on all of the arguments. But if you, if you just make some kind of ridiculous shorthand version of it, some caricature of the other side, you're not going to get taken seriously yourself. So the other thing I'd say about writing is know what genre that you're in. So law review writing is very different than brief writing. Right. And so one of the first mistakes I made as a, as a first, you know, summer associate in a law firm was I had come out of law review. And so I wrote like the brief that I wrote to the partner was like this whole background on, you know, some tort that we were talking about. He's like, I don't need a law review article. I need to know what the argument is and what you think the conclusion should be. But when you're in a law review, you do have the space to give some context to the whole thing. So just be aware of where who you're writing to and what the genre is and do it appropriately.
So I, I won't get into pet peeves like uh, my wife's propensity to misuse, misuse commas, uh, but I think along along the lines of what uh, Asifa was saying, I think it's important to remember your audience and in brief writing, uh, it's important to, to just write well, write clearly, write concisely, uh, write in a way that's easily understandable because the more the easier it is for the judge and the clerk to understand what you're saying, the more likely that that your point is going to hit home. Do they do they still use plain English for lawyers? You guys still know about that book? There's a book written by one of my professors at UC Davis. It's called Plain English for Lawyers, and it it breaks that like repetitiveness that we do, or we say the same thing five different times when we don't really need to. And it talks about how to break it down into like a clean one sentence for the point and one word for the key point. Um, check it out. I think it's still out there. It's a really helpful book. I have it on my shelf. Great. Thank you all. So as um, I mentioned to all of you, this year's Law Review Symposium is coming up. It's next week. It'll be virtual. And um, the Law Review Symposium will be exploring Wisconsin's intellectual history and um, just tying tying that to what do you think of when you think of Wisconsin's legal history? What values come to mind and what makes Wisconsin's legal community unique? You know, I think one of the things that makes uh, this law school unique is the, is the fact that because Wisconsin does not have a bar exam, because when you graduate from the University of Wisconsin Law School, you are able to practice in Wisconsin that you end up going to law school and then practicing with people who you went to law school with for years and years and years. And I think it builds a different type of community. And because it's a public law school, the, the, a lot of the students who go here are from communities in Wisconsin. And so it just builds a big community that lasts for a long time where people are educated and then able to you know, case in point, I grew up in, in Middleton. I went to I went away to college. I came back here, went to law school and grad school, and I have worked in this community my whole life, side by side. Many of of the people I was in with whom I was in law school, and I think that that is very different than most others other states. I second that, having been part of my career with the kinds of cases that took me all around the state and the, the identity with the law school in the state and the legal community is real. I'd often get the question from a judge, are you Professor Skilton's son? I had to confess sometimes, but I should have asked the question, well, what grade did you get? What was your grade? <laughs> yeah. If it was an A, yes. Otherwise, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I don't know him at all. <laughs> um, I'm not from Wisconsin, um, and I can tell you a little bit about the reputation of Wisconsin outside of Wisconsin. So when I interviewed here, I didn't, I'm from California. I was a total, one of those, it's just flyover territory kind of attitude. Um, I asked my, I'd spent some time in New York and Boston and that was it. Like, I didn't even know anyone in Chicago. Like I was not a Midwesterner at all. Um, and I asked around to, you know, some of my mentors about whether I should take this, this job. And the reputation was that there is, first of all, solid scholarship here, and it was known for law and society. It was known for building the field of thinking about, as we say, law and action. How does law affect people on the ground? It's not just the law and books, but it's what 
what, how does it interact with people? Um, and I love legal theory and I didn't really think very much about that. I was really happy to sit in my ivory tower and just ponder about things. And when I did my job talk here, I loved the questions I got. I love the kinds of like, well, I don't know anything about Islamic law, but what you're saying is making me wonder about this issue. And it really pushed me to take the issues and really nail them down to real life. And I really value that. And I think that that's still, it's not as strong as it was, I think in the seventies when it built that reputation. But I think there's an awareness, even among the young faculty, that that's what Wisconsin is known for and that we owe it to that field to continue to keep doing those kinds of, ask those kinds of questions in our scholarship and keep it in a law and society kind of awareness and bring back more of that into the conversation um, and nationally and internationally. Um, so that's definitely the reputation outside. And then what I realized too, was you mentioned about critical, critical race theory, legal uh, realism, law and society. But one that I noticed that wasn't on there that I'm working in right now is legal pluralism. So the idea of the, and it's a parallel to law and society, right? If there is such a thing non-state law as well as law and all affects people's decision-making and Stuart Macaulay working with the local businesses, making decisions that had nothing to do with contract law on the books, that kind of thing. Um, but what I really, just recently, as I'm working on my current book, I kept running across references to professors here, some of whom are still here, who were leaders in legal pluralism. And I hadn't even realized that ex they're right in my backyard. And so I immediately start emailing everybody like, oh my God, I didn't know about this article that you wrote. Would you please sit down with me and talk with me? So um, just the idea of thinking about law in different ways, looking at the same thing from a different angle, I think is what the strength of Wisconsin is. And, and, I, and I hope that we convey that to the students. I think there's still faculty that include that in their conversations with students in the way that they teach. And I think that's a huge strength. It's too bad we didn't record Willard Hurst yeah. uh, the lectures that, that he gave both in terms of uh, legislation, uh, but also in terms of uh, construction of statutes and the like. It was a, a textbook, but also insightful in ways that yeah. only yeah. Could, could do. That's how Shirley yeah. got here, you know. Yeah, I mean, if no. anyone's had Stuart Macaulay or Howie Erlanger or Boa Santos, you're going to get the flavor of what that era was. Mark Galanter. Mark Galanter. Yeah, there's a bunch. Yeah. So, uh, Asifa kind of said what I was thinking, but much more eloquently than I would have said it. Um, you know, I, I think there is there's this progressive tradition, um, but there's also a very practical aspect to it and how does it really work in the real world you know like professor macaulay's um, relational contract theory not let's not assume away the real world facts uh to get to the legal theory let's test the legal theory in the real world and and see how it works um and, and i think that's a really important perspective to actually make change and some of it's just for lawyers. My uh, my father wrote on Article 9 of the UCC. Only lawyers could be interested in that topic. But it was as a result, he, he was digging into the uh, interstices of the of the statute, uh, the nuances, the penumbras. Uh, and when you're in a real case and someone's written on the topic, it's useful uh, to have that opinion. Uh, again, that's not uh, highfalutin in any sense other than it's difficult stuff. And I think this goes all, all the way back to, uh, you know, it was the early 1900s where the university system developed the Wisconsin idea. And this was kind of the obligation beyond the students to the entire state 
to apply sort of reason and, and intellect to the, the problems of society to improve it. And so, you know, that has just kind of, I think, passed down and been part of kind of the fiber of, uh, of a Wisconsin law. And the issue of practicality is part of it, too. I, you know, all of these sexy top topics are of great public interest, but law reviews have real value, it seems to me, ought to be used. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of, of a balance in there that relates to uh, legal issues that arise in the practice of law. That's, that's kind of related to the, I was str struggling to figure out an answer to your question about how could the law review be improved? Because, I mean, there's like internal, how do you do a better job at what you do? But what I kept thinking about was, I wish the people outside of the law school knew the topics and the issues and the ideas that are happening inside of the law review. And the, the first thing I could think of was like, I wish, and this goes with the Wisconsin idea that, and I remember the first time I heard about the Wisconsin, I was just so amazed that what a beautiful thought that is that the taxpayers of Wisconsin pay for the knowledge that is generated in the law school and all around the campus and that we own it. It's a trust. We, Wisconsin citizens own that knowledge. And so it's a responsibility of everyone on campus to try to convey that knowledge to the people who are paying for it. And I just think that's such a beautiful idea. And so much of the country and the, the state, the country in general, but especially the state, there's this, they don't recognize the value of what's created because they have this sort of, oh, you liberal colleges, you're just doing your thing. They get paid too much tenure, professors get all this cushy job and you're not doing anything to help society. And, but the Wisconsin idea is about helping society and pushing us to write articles about things that really matter, whether it's Wisconsin agriculture impact or whatever. And I just wish more of the public could see that. And you wouldn't, I don't think, see the level of vitriol and hatred and resistance to the academia. And why is UW costing us so much money and all of this? There would be more of a, a statewide pride in helping and contributing and building this knowledge more rather than having this push pull of who gets what out of the state legislature with the funds. And so I just was trying to struggle with, is there a better way to get that information out there? Whether it's you editors writing op-ed pieces about some of the articles came out, maybe building them something that's easy for the public to hear about. Um, and then saying, and if you want to read more, go check out the law. I don't know if it's, it's password protected, the public can't read it. I don't know, but like some way to get them to know what's happening that we really are talking talking about issues, and as Michael said, really focusing on Wisconsin as the topic of a lot of our, our academic work. Um, I just feel like it would help not just get the law review out there, but I think it would help shift the attitude about education, about higher education in the state and in the country if we were to get that in people's minds a little bit more, that it's not just this elite ivory tower cushy job people, but it really is people who care and are trying to help and find the issues that are important. And that goes all the way down to the students writing their own comments um, on the law review. So that's, I'm trying to put it all together and that's the best I can do there. I think one of the things we have forgotten to talk about too, and we're talking about the law school and the contributions of the law school to the state of Wisconsin is in the whole area of criminal law, right? I mean, if it weren't for Professor Remington and Schultz and Dickey, the Wisconsin criminal code might look completely different than what it looks like today. Um, the, Remington, the Remington Center, and the work that, that they have done there. Um, we're talking about law in action and we haven't talked about the clinicals, but of course those clinical programs, you know, I, I hugely benefited from both LAIP and the prosecution program. I think that makes this law school special. I also think that it makes this law school relatable to people on the outside world, which is what I think we are talking about. 
Um, I think when we also talk about Wisconsin as a state and we talk about victims of crime, Wisconsin was the first state in the country to pass a victim's bill of rights. And a little known fact is that the University of Wisconsin Law School for a while was only one of about four law schools in the country that had a class called victims in the criminal justice system. And I know that because I taught that class. Um, and so I, I think that in, in many ways that Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin Law School has been on the forefront of many, many issues concerning you know, criminal law. And if, you know, as we, you know, you don't have to, unless you've been living, living under a rock since <laughs> June, um, you know, you know, the issues that have come up with, with policing and, and Professor Goldstein and all the work that he did on, I took every single class I could from him. Um, but we have just had giants when it has come to these issues, walk through the halls of the, of the UW Law School. Very, very fortunate to be in, in contact with those folks. And it's a long history of our academic world connecting with the policymaking world. I mean, it's a, going all the way back. You mentioned you were in the La Follette School. It goes all the way back to La Follette, right? Taking yeah. ideas and then works well in Wisconsin and then take Social Security up to the federal level. I mean, this is a long, long history of this coordination right. cooperation of idea generation. Um, and it should be something that everyone in Wisconsin recognizes and is proud of. I used to take my there used to be a plaque in front of the law school that talks about that social security history with um, Witty and all these people that had generated that. And I used to actually take my constitutional law class outside the door to walk around to look and read that thing. And a couple of years ago, it disappeared. Someone vandalized it and it's gone now. And I called around to building, like, how do we get this back? And it was going to cost a bunch of money and all this red tape. And I was so frustrated because it's like, you guys walk past this plaque every day. How many have Read it right, and so that kind of awareness of the, the long history of cooperation, of idea generation, legal experts, policymakers, and then getting it out onto the ground is just exactly what Wisconsin's all about. People should know about it. Great, well, thank you all so much. I think that wraps up all of the questions that I had for you all today and I've taken enough of your time. So thank you so much for um, joining us. The Forward Podcast is brought to you by the Wisconsin Law Review, a journal of legal scholarship published by University of Wisconsin law students. A special thanks to the Law Review Associates who made this production possible, Dylan Ochoa, Laura Schwendeman, and Miranda Salazar. Our next episode will cover the legal issues surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, featuring legal experts on the topic. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to stay up to date on our new episodes. Thanks for listening.